I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Browson Touchpoint Center, and this is Learning to Listen, Conversations for Change. This episode is sponsored by the Burke Foundation, First Phi Santa Clara County, and Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings. And we'll be talking with Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot about the ways she's been changing conversations. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, a MacArthur Prize-winning sociologist, is the Emily Hargroves Fisher Professor of Education at Harvard University, where she has been on the faculty since 1972. Mm -hmm. Educator, researcher, author, and public intellectual, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot has written 12 books, I think now. 11. 11. Yeah. Among them, and I'm going to read the titles because mm -hmm. they do begin to give us a sense of where your work has taken you. The first, I think, was Worlds Apart, mm -hmm. Relationships Between Families and Schools, Beyond Bias, Perspectives on Classrooms, The Good High School, Portraits of Character and Culture, which received the 1984 Outstanding Book Award from the American Educational Research Association. Then there was Baum and Gilead, Journey of a Healer, a classic which won the 1988 Christopher Award given for literary merit and humanitarian achievement. And that one was followed by I've Known Rivers, Lives of Loss and Liberation. And I just have to stop there and say, even in the titles, the way you use language, um, mm -hmm. it's just so beautiful and so moving. Then there's the art and science of portraiture, uh, which documents your pioneering approach to a social science methodology, which is mm -hmm. both um, part aesthetics and part empiricism. And then there's respect and exploration. Mm -hmm. And the essential conversation, what parents and teachers can learn from each other. Then <laughs> there's the third chapter, risk, passion, and adventure in the 25 years after 50. And then I thought this was your latest one, but there's a new one that I'll get to, uh, the, the penultimate exit, yes. the endings that set us free. Um, mm. And then the most recent one is, I love this title too, Growing Each Other Up When Our Children Become Our Teachers. So I, um, it is just such an honor and delight to um, be able to have this conversation with you. But there's more to say. In 1984, you were the recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Prize. In 1993, the Harvard George Ludley Prize, given for research that makes the most valuable contribution to science and the benefit of mankind. You've been the recipient of 28 honorary degrees, and that's probably then, that's probably gone up. Yes. <laughs> uh, and um, in 1993, the Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot Chair and endowed professorship was established at Swarthmore College. In 1998, you became the recipient of the Emily Hargroves Fisher Endowed Chair at Harvard University, which, upon your retirement, <laughs> will become the Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot Endowed Chair making you the first African-American woman in Harvard's history to have an endowed professorship named in your honor. Is it okay to say it's about time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say that. Mm -hmm. So um, I was thinking about your book, Exits, The Endings That Set Us Free, mm -hmm. particularly because the inspiration for this conversation was remembering and honoring Barry Brasselton, who 
inspired my work and who you've told me has been a part of your um, early thinking. And so I thought um, maybe before talking about exits, we could talk about entering. Mm -hmm. And how about how you begin conversations in um, the essential conversation what parents and teachers can learn from each other and in respect. You go right to the childhoods of the people mm -hmm. you're portraying mm -hmm. with your method of portraiture. Mm -hmm. You go to their families, their families' stories, their ancestral histories, and you start the essential conversation um, with these really important stories about your own childhood and about your mm -hmm. parents at school. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered, how do you begin the conversation? Is that where you begin? Because that's where you begin to tell the story, right. but where do you begin? No matter where I begin the conversation, it always, in some ways, traces back to mm -hmm. people's childhoods and families and roots, and often to ancestry, mm -hmm. um, because that's where stories begin for people. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if, typically, I don't necessarily begin by saying, tell me about your childhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems um, in, an invasive kind of question and uh, premature. Mm -hmm. And I think people are much better if you say what happened yesterday, you mm -hmm. know, when you were watching your child's soccer game. A very bad question is one that sort of invites abstraction and rhetoric, <laughs> you know. So a bad question is, you know, what is your philosophy of education, Dr. Sparrow? <laughs> um, because I mean, we who are academics and who are in the field and used to teaching, maybe we can answer that. But that's not a question that touches at the heart of people and of the ways in which they create and compose and build their lives. If you want to get at what is your philosophy of education, you pick out something that you've seen them do and you ask, you know, ask them about it, hmm. why they did it, how they did it. Uh, what was their purpose in doing it? Any regrets in doing that? You know that, and then you tease out over time what their philosophy of education is. And this is true of parenting too, when mm -hmm. that you don't ask these large, big questions that sort of put people in categories of conservative parents or progressive parents, or you know, um, but rather you ask them about something that they did with their child, right? And and have them particularly if you've seen them do it, have them describe it and ask them very, very, very specific questions. In the particular resides the universal, right? In good mm -hmm. storytelling. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I mostly begin with the now and with very specific experience and observation. It was true, that, and, and then, then it just, just kind of evolves and people begin to talk about, where did this come from? Um, and very, very soon they're talking about their families of origin, right? Mm. Uh, the neighborhoods where they grew up, their best friends in high school, you know, and it just goes from there. Mm. Reading the way you write the portraits, um, you sometimes do begin with the story of the family or the story mm -hmm. of the childhood. And in the way you write those stories, um, I think there is a way in which you bring your reader into the story that leaves a kind of spaciousness for the mm -hmm. person you're portraying. Well, I, when I talk to people, 
um, I gather a lot of data, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just interviewing, it's observation, it's document analysis, it's all of that. Mm -hmm. And I always gather more data that can, than I can possibly mm -hmm. use in telling the story, mm -hmm. right? And, and as, you know, you're listening for the story all the time, not just listening to the story, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you're really trying to figure out what is the story, not only that they are telling, but that you want to tell about them. So mm -hmm. there's a kind of co-construction part in this, right? Mm -hmm. So part of the art of this work is choosing to figure out what is the story I want to tell, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and then figuring out what's in and what's out, because the quiet places, the silences, you know, in telling a story or in doing art are just as important as the places where there is sound, you know, and color and texture. You've touched on a number of things that I was hoping we could talk about, <laughs> which is not surprising because there's yeah. this wonderful coherence across mm -hmm. your work. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure you do already. It, it does make me wonder about um, how that coherence evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe I can mention the things I'm thinking about, and these may not be the things that are most central, but in what you just said, um, this idea of the, the importance of the silences. Mm -hmm. And there's also um, what you said about the way you bring yourself. You listen mm -hmm. to the story, you also listen for the story. Mm -hmm. And then you co-construct the story that you'd like to tell from mm -hmm. what you listen for. Mm -hmm. And so one of the other uh, parts of the coherence is the way in which in a conversation, um, both people are changed. Mm -hmm. They change each other. And you, you portray these conversations between parents and teachers doctors and patients, between pastoral counselors and people who are dying from AIDS. Mm. Uh, and, and in all of them, the, the standard paradigm may be that there is this power imbalance. Mm -hmm. But what, what you show is that when you're, when you're in this conversation, you make yourself vulnerable and mm -hmm. allow yourself to be changed. So that mm -hmm. that's another mm -hmm. um, coherence, I think, all the way through what I know of your. So it makes me wonder, yeah. how how did that all start, and how did you get there, and who were your teachers? Yeah. Well, um, I grew up with two parents who sort of represent different aspects of my work. My mother, um, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst always caring about trauma and healing uh, and illness and thriving and all of those those kinds of things and always sort of telling stories from the inside out right uh, what was interior to the person so I'm very always very interested in that and my father was a sociologist and uh, a big-time macro sociologist who studied things against a sort of socio-historical background, big issues like race and class and gender and those kinds of things, and was always very aware of the broader ecology and sort of the outside in, 
you know. And these were the conversations we had around our table. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have described it this way at age eight, but the point is that there was always this, this sort of lovely balance and tension between where do you begin the story, mm -hmm. from the outside, from the inside, and I kind of have tried to do in my, my own work both, right? I've tried to really honor the shaping influences of the broader ecology, the various circles around us as we develop as human beings, the sort of Yuri Brofenbrenner mm -hmm. approach. And I've taught about that and written about that. But I've also very, very interested in how people um, compose their own reality and that they, we have great agency. We have lots of choice. Um, and, um, and we can shape and reconstruct and redesign things. And we can do that. We can do that ourselves as individuals, but it's even better if we can do that as community, you know, together. And, and, so, um, and, and so that's, that's part of an answer, I think, to your question. Another is the sort of use of the self, of myself, in the work, in the field, when I'm doing the work, um, I'm an active um, person in constructing and helping to construct these stories. Mostly, I'm listening acutely. I mean, particularly for this series, <laughs> I think in my teaching and in my research, what's the what are the two most important things that I'm concerned about uh, developing and continuing to develop in myself? And one is curiosity and the other is listening. And, and the curiosity isn't like a gotcha kind of stance that a journalist might have as they try to probe a story that's all sexy. And, and, um, uh, but, but rather, it is an opening of communication, right? It's, it's a curiosity that children have if they're not robbed of it in school, right? That is, because all children, it's at least my, is, you know, uh, what's, what's behind that door? How are you feeling today, Yaya? What's happening? You know, in other words, it's these are these are constantly coming out of little children's mouths as they are curious about what's happening around them. So curiosity and then listening with full attention, being completely in the room, right? Um, and receiving what people are saying, not speaking over them, not providing a script that in any way um, um, obscure or compromise their message, you know, or distort, that's the word I want to use, distort their message. So the use of the self in the work is important. And the self, of course, begins with me and, and my, and this is true, I believe, with all social scientists, all kinds of researchers, although most people don't admit it. We are curious about those things um, that are important to us, usually from way back in our childhood. You know, so if so, part of the coherence to my work comes from the fact that um, I'm I'm moving through all the things which were struggles or problems or th these issues in my own life that um, I was deeply, deeply curious about um, uh, from way, way back, way, way back. I mean, I remember respect coming out of. Uh, you know that the book come and the research coming out of this disjuncture this dissonance that i experienced between my parents who were always respectful of everyone you know in in uh, always whoever they were 
in contact with you just you just felt this all the time um, and and I remember sitting in the back of the car as a kid and going over the George Washington Bridge when there were toll takers right and the toll takers had their names on their jackets and my dad would open the window which you couldn't do with a button you know, roll the window <laughs> down to give the 50 cents which now costs eight dollars right <laughs> 50 cents and he would say Good morning, Mr. Thompson. How are you? You know, that was, I mean, and, and I remember as a kid watching that. I also remember the ways in which, uh, usually because of uh, subtle and not so subtle racism, my parents were often the brunt of, of racist assaults and disrespect. And how did they manage that dissonance? How did they continue? to be so deeply respectful of everyone, whoever it was. And, and this was very apparent in our house because, you know, they were respectful of our friends, of the kids, you know, uh, who came in and my father would always kind of interview them, you know, you know, where, where do you live and what are you interested in, you know? And then he was deeply curious about who these human beings were who were coming into the house. And then it meant that my friends would, would laugh about that. They would then be respectful of us, of everyone in that environment as well. Can we go back to one of those early um, experiences mm -hmm. that you write about in the essential conversation, mm -hmm. what parents and teachers can learn from each other, mm -hmm. um, which is in part a racial assault. That's how you begin mm -hmm. that book where um, I think you were sick you were very young. Yes. And you missed some school, and the teacher proclaimed that you were going to be a terrible failure and had no potential. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah. pretty, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. awful mm -hmm. to say or think. I mean, it's we can laugh now, given yeah. just how um, you know how much you've given to all of us for um, a good long while, mm -hmm. um, and how much more you have to keep on giving. But back then, how awful to mm. proclaim. Um, a child's lack of mm -hmm. potential, mm -hmm. and and you talk about your um, your parents being so shaken, and you're watching them as you just said mm -hmm. very closely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were you were a very curious. I was I was a, a, a kid as 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 ethnographer from the very yeah. beginning. It was true. A kid as a, yeah, and and you noticed that they were not clear or forthright the way maybe you might have hoped or expected mm -hmm. initially. And you also, in the same part of the book, fast forward to your own experiences as a parent and yeah. you're yeah. going to your children's conferences. Mm -hmm. So um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that because so much of the work of our Braswell and Touchpoint Center yeah. um, is on these essential conversations and you've told me that some of your early thinking long before that book came from uh, Barry Brazelton's uh, work in which he learned that children, even newborns, mm -hmm. uh, are our teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the, um, I think that the whole kind of conceit of this book, The Essential Conversation, is that this encounter between parents and teachers is supposed to be pleasant. 
And it's supposed to represent the fact that both parents and teachers care deeply about the child and how can they possibly work together in collaboration uh, in a benign kind of fluid and uh, support the child in early development. But what's true about most parent-teacher conferences, and that's true about whoever is, what, whatever age the child is, whatever race the parents are and the teacher is, it, it is usually a very anxiety-laden, very stressful, very difficult, often competitive and adversarial encounter. And um, I was interested, because of my own experiences with this as a child and as a parent, I was interested in understanding what is going on there. Um, how is this little tiny microcosm a reflection of some of the wider structural systemic forces that are out there, right? Uh, uh, race, immigration status, gender class, all those things that get loaded on to this encounter between parents and teachers and often lead to um, uh, this kind of friction and this kind of um, even alienation that goes on. And so uh, I was interested in, in exploring, in sort of taking back the veil that insists that this is pleasant when everyone feels just in their bellies, parents feel terrified going into these. Even if their kids are A students, they're worried about it, you know. And, um, and teachers speak about being at their most vulnerable when they are encountering parents. And teacher training programs don't take seriously the importance of us understanding how to do this work, um, valuing this work and how to do this work. And I think the first thing that's important here is that parents know their children better than anyone else. I don't care who they are. I don't care what kind of education they've had. They have a holistic, longitudinal, deeply, deeply intimate uh, picture of who their child is, right? And uh, I think one of the things I found with these teachers who were very successful in working with parents is that these teachers honored that kind of knowing and wanted to know from parents how they saw their child. And not just how they saw their child, but how they saw their child in all of his or her goodness and competency, you know, and giftedness, right? So the first, for some of these teachers, the first conference was designed to be, and they called it that, a listening conference, a one in which they're not telling, so in October, how well do they know a kid who arrived in September? but they're asking their, uh, that child's parents um, to talk to them about who their child is, right? Describe your child. They'll even be even more pointed sometimes, tell me something good about your child. What does he enjoy? What is she like? You know, what makes her happy? And, um, and teachers are then listening carefully and gathering that information because in knowing what they then know from parents, they, we hope, will be better able to um, teach, care for, guide, support the child in his or her development. There's also another thing that parents need to recognize, which is school is a place where children can become different from their parents, you know, where they can develop as 
human beings uh, in a way that is out of the purview of their parents. And so we would expect that children in school, sure, they're the same as at home, yeah, but they're also different, right? And, and, um, and this is an opportunity, and they're with, with other children and other teachers. They, they're living in crowds and in groups and showing different parts of themselves. And so that part of what good teachers do in parent-teacher conferences once they get to know kids is to tell parents, this is the way he is in school. And, and good teachers will collect these anecdotes. They'll even write them down for the moment when they'll be meeting with parents and can tell a story because a story with all, in all of its subtle, descriptive, nuanced detail to a parent will, uh, um, will be much more informative than any, any standardized testing score which, which uh, the teacher might want to communicate. So they begin with this wonderful anecdote that, that captures the essence of this kid and they teach the parents something about who this kid is in here, you know. Um, and, and that's the way this honoring and deeply respectful relationship can begin to become a collaboration, uh, an alliance, a bridging of home and school in a way that, that gets us past this anxiety and stress and adversarial relationship. In the touch points approach that Barry Brazelton developed, uh, he um, has said so many of the same kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He talks about gatekeeping, which mm -hmm. he defined as the natural competition between any two adults who care passionately about the same child. Yeah. And so it was his way of positively framing the tension, and you mm -hmm. used the mm -hmm. word competition. Mm -hmm. And then in the touch points approach, we um, work on moving towards a set of assumptions about parents that are all strengths-based and mm -hmm. positive, which include all parents are the experts yeah. on their children, which is exactly what you just said. And then the other that, which is one of the touch points guiding principles, is um, use the child's behavior as your way to make your relationship with the parents. And that's, I think, mm -hmm. exactly what you mm -hmm. just said about mm -hmm. the stories, the anecdotes, mm -hmm. the details of what mm -hmm. the child did, which is what you've also said is where you begin mm -hmm. in the conversations that mm -hmm. are a part of your method of uh, portraiture right. is with what's happening now, uh, what happened yesterday, with, mm -hmm. with that right in front of us that we can both witness. Both witness, yeah. exactly. And when you, you when you talk about that, and, and you do talk about this in your books, it, you say this is not the same thing as psychotherapy. No. But I thought it might be helpful for you to say, so, you know, where might it seem similar and where are the differences? Especially since, we're, you know, one side of this is the interior life that was your mother's influence. And you talk about the ghosts in the nursery, yeah. quoting Selma Freiberg, who was a psychoanalyst. Yes. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that one of the reasons why I began to develop and pioneer this portraiture was that was against a backdrop of social science research where almost all of it is an investigation of pathology, an investigation of weakness. What's broken here? What's weak here? 
And, and that's also, by the way, conflated with a study of people who are poor, who are uneducated. You know, so it's this study using people who are marginalized and oppressed um, and often impoverished, poor, um, and then searching for pathology. Those two things conflating have made, I think, uh, have really, uh, I think, been a, a, a misreading of so much of human experience and capacity. So part of what I wanted to do in developing portraiture, besides making beautiful work, which was part of it, <laughs> uh, that people could read and enjoy and identify with, but was that I was very interested in focusing on what was strong and what was, uh, uh, what was uh, resilient. I call that goodness. You know, what, what's good here? Just beginning with that. And if you go into any place, into a family, into a neighborhood, into a school, visit with a peer group, and you ask the question, what is good here? It's a very different answer, and you have a very different set of lenses than if you go in and say, what's wrong? What's not working? What's weak? And one of the things that I discovered is that in, in searching for the good, it isn't this romanticized, rose-colored glasses stuff. It is, um, it allows, in sort of beginning with that lens that searches for the good, it allows for us to recognize all of the vulnerability, all of the imperfection, all of the, all of the moments when, all the confusions that are part of any human enterprise, any human experience that are part of the developmental process, you know. And so it opens up the capacity for social scientists, researchers, practitioners, I believe, doctors, <laughs> to see a much more complicated person many of, of much more dimensionality um, and much more promise. In your, your book, you, you almost in every portrait that um, I've read, or perhaps in all of them, you do talk about the hard parts, yeah. the conflict, that it mm -hmm. isn't always easy and that there are tensions. And I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about those and maybe if those arise in the process of conducting the portraiture, mm -hmm. um, what maybe that maybe there's one that you can tell us about and yeah. where where how you go through those and where they take you. Well, I think that, um, there is a way in which I try to work that allows people to tell a story that they've told before, maybe, mm. in a different way, right? And in that, often discovering the underbelly that just is painful, you know? And so it is not unusual that in that discovery, people start weeping, you know, people are surprised that uh, that comes out. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a discovery process often in there. So that allowing the whole canvas to be possible, to be, you know, to talk about what's good and what's enjoyable and what's joyous and what's compelling, you know, it, it allows in some ways you to, um, to be much more reflective about those things which get in the way of those things happening as well. So I was thinking about um, uh, a doctor who I interviewed 
um, an epidemiologist um, working in West Africa, who I interviewed for my book, The Third Chapter, uh, Passion, Risk, and Adventure, in 25 years after 50, 62 years old, and a public health doctor, uh, African-American, middle-class family he came from, uh, not married, not with children, had devoted his entire life, you know, entire life to doing the work, uh, and much of it in West Africa. And um, so this book is really about what happens in these years that allows people to change direction, to take a risk, to have an adventure. So he, he began to, um, to take voice lessons um, and uh, got very, very involved in these voice lessons. Um, and whenever, even when he was away in Africa, he would find people to work with and back, come back. And so he begins, to, I'm, I'm interested in, gee, how did you get inspired to do these voice lessons? This is fascinating, and particularly since most of his professional journey has not allowed time to do anything else but that. I mean, that's one, his entire preoccupation and focus. And he's been very successful at that in, from whatever set of criteria you could think about. So he begins to tell me that when he was a little boy, about the age of six and maybe even five, he used to sit on his mother's lap and um, listen to the Metropolitan Opera on Sunday afternoons, you know. And he just loved that moment. He, he, he couldn't get over how much he loved that sound coming out of the radio. And On his mother's lap. And the point is he was also sitting on his mother's lap, right? That's mm. true. And, and you could look forward to that every single week. <laughs> You know, really? and it was a very beautiful time. And one time he said to his mother, when he was six, he said to his mother, you know, I really, I want to do that. I want to be an opera singer. Hmm. And she didn't discourage him in words, but she had a look that was, that he described that was dismissive. Like that's, he said, and so now he's describing to me, and tears are coming down his face. That's for sissies. That's for sissies. And he never mentioned it again. You know. Um, so in the in the, this part in this story, where I'm just asking, how did you get interested in this? He goes back to this painful place of being dismissed by his mother, just by glance, from this moment of utter beauty and peace you know, and safety in her lap listening to these beautiful tones. So what does he want to do when he's 62? He wants to recover from that wound, that hurt, and get on with it, with this thing which he felt so passionate about then and still now. But our, our exchange allowed him to tell this story about his interest. In a, it even surprised him way, bringing, bringing back the tears. And what he said, too, about this was that his discovery of returning to this place of pleasure and passion, you know, learning how to sing with his whole body, body channel, use his diaphragm, make a good sound, he feels as if that's also made him a better doctor. You know, the voice that he's discovering here is giving him power more power uh, and to as he says tell the truth in his work
to the people he works with. I mean, it, how beautiful is that? And this is not, I, I tell you this story, but I could almost tell you that everyone I've done, I've, I've, I've worked with in portraiture, there is a moment of, of such uh, recognition um, and discovery um, that, that expresses the underside of a story that's been told and practiced over and over again, but that piece hasn't been revealed. So this sounds like one way of talking about creating symmetry, which yes. is one of the, um, I think, very beautiful ways you have of saying what happens in respect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and this wasn't always that easy because I'm a Harvard professor. I'm coming into people's lives, uh, many of them not well educated or from elite play. You know all this kind of stuff. And you have to very quickly, within the first 30 seconds, you have to convince them that you are not this person they might have imagined you to be. And um, you can't do that unless that's truly who you are. <laughs> that's one of the, you know, that's really, mm -hmm. so this is who I am. I've mm -hmm. come to you. I'm curious. Um, I, you know, and I always say, if there's something that you don't want me to tape or something that you don't want me to know, just let me know. We'll stop. I just think that there's a way in which the symmetry um, is something you have to enact from the very beginning. It's very interesting if you read the book Respect, uh, you know, there are these six stories of people who are engaged in respectful relationships and as you said earlier have this sort of asymmetry assumed asymmetry of status and education and stuff um, but uh, what's so interesting is that they what they're about is establishing a kind of equality and it is the respect that brings the equality the symmetry there so there is this there are these six stories but you can also read the book and realize and it, and it comes through that there is this researcher, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, talking with each of these protagonists. And, and you can read that text and see that this is a, a project in respectful encounter as well, you know, and in developing symmetry and in revealing vulnerability um, and in supporting strength. But I remember my father telling me one of the things that's great about this kind of work is that you're going to get better and better and better at this, at listening, at witnessing, at modeling, at being able to tolerate uh, uh, silence and, and let it just sit there, you know, and be there. So, um, so not to fill up the space with your anxiety or your talk or your wish for some some direction that this might take but to let it be there and sometimes it just remains silence but in other times it's it it off it offers the space for insight you know and revelation um, and even something like powerful like redemption and you know it's imp and important as we think about Barry Brazelton and the early days of mothers and children you know that often 
when I am working, interviewing someone, I can feel my mother listening to me. In other words, she had a way of asking a question and just listening to her kids, and still does, uh, even at 104. You know, she listens. And that one of the ways to develop that in people uh, is to, as you know, is to do, do that with your children, is to really, truly, respectfully, attentively listen to what they're saying, not what you hope they are, would say, but really what are they saying, you know. And, um, and, and kids are great correct, correctors of that. I mean, I remember, um, you know, part of, part of my work in respect and part of the book talks about one of the dimensions of respect being attention, you know, being right there, being fully there, fully in the room responding, often in silence, but sometimes very actively involved. Um, and I think this is harder to do with those people closest to us. You know, so I remember <laughs> my kids would say, you know, I was the queen of respect at home because I'd written this book. <laughs> I'd get home and Martin, uh, you know, after a long day, I'm exhausted. The last thing I feel I, I can possibly do is really listen really carefully to what it is is on their minds. And I would be, and so we would often be cooking dinner together, you know, but I, I, I remember clearly Martin in particular, who does insist that you listen. He would take my, my face in his hands. He would turn my face toward, Mom, I'm talking to you. Listen to me. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to me. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do when you're tired and when you have so much going on and you're exhausted, even with the kind of resources that I have. Think about parents all over. This is the hardest thing to do. Uh, I think it's the hardest thing to do in a relationship. Uh, and, but I do think that it is what intimacy grows out of this kind of listening, this mm. attention. Um, this respect, this empathy, uh, you know, whatever kind of relationship it is, you know, listen to me, listen to what I'm saying. But I'm in turning my face there, so I had to look deeply in, into his eyes. Uh, and he'll, he'll, stu he'll stu still say that, you know. As I listen to you talk about attention and how intimacy comes from attention, I'm thinking about, in family mealtimes, I'm thinking about the smartphones that are now in our homes, in our environments, in, in between us. I just wondered what, what you're seeing and thinking about what's happening to attention. Yeah. Well, that's, I, think, I think that's a really, really hard problem. So I think that we have to push against what's an invasion of space uh, and time for uh, conversation, conversation uh, and attention, um, and respectful regard of one another. When I hear you say we have to push against it, I'm thinking about what you've said about portraiture as um, social science methodology being a way of pushing against what uh, was really a misreading mm -hmm. and a labeling, but that you did it with this grace 
and this mm -hmm. beauty. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I want to thank you for um, your beauty and your grace and you. your wisdom and this gift of um, our time together, this conversation with each other. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. We'll go to the chat in just a moment. And please do write in more of your thoughts and reactions and questions. But first, of course, I want to thank again, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot for this conversation. If you'd like to watch or listen again or share this webcast and podcast with friends and colleagues, you can find it at browsedintouchpoints.org. I also want to thank our Learning to Listen Conversations for Change sponsors, the Burke Foundation, First Five Santa Clara County, and Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings. And I want to be sure to thank our production team, Kayla Savelli, Michael Accardi, and Susanna Kasich. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And please do come back again on November 19th for listening to Fathers with Kyle Pruitt. And for those of you who can stay a little longer, let's take a look at what's in the chat. One um, comment that came in uh, early on uh, from our own Jane Singer uh, was gathering of observation and quotes and sharing what you observe in another with them in service of story resounds so beautifully with Barry's core relational strategy with families of sharing observations of their child's behavior as the first building block. And of course, part of why um, we uh, were so eager to have this conversation with uh, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot is because um, I think they both influenced each other uh, earlier in their careers. And in fact, uh, as a, a little truthoid, um, uh, I think Professor Lawrence Lightfoot's mother, who was a child psychiatrist, um, had an office in the same building as Barry Brazelton. So there was a lot of cross-pollination in the early days. There was another uh, comment, um, there was another comment uh, asking about um, thoughts on the idea of utilizing universal precautions as it relates to trauma and trauma-informed care. And I'd actually be interested, of course, in all of your thoughts on that. But I, I thought I'd, I'd read to you um, something that sort of kicks that up a notch that actually comes from uh, work uh, with First Five Santa Clara County um, out of their uh, Santa Clara County uh, cross-agency service team report, which talks about trauma-informed healing focused systems. So it's thinking about um, not only universal approaches uh, to uh, being trauma-informed and healing, but to trauma-informed healing focused systems. So they're just three short quotes. The first is, like people, Organizations are susceptible to trauma in ways that contribute to fragmentation, numbing, reactivity, and depersonalization. And one of the things that I think is so important about the way Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot approaches these conversations in which she creates symmetry across differences, across imbalances of power, class, uh, etc., is that um, she really strives to overcome this kind of fragmentation um, to bring the parts together and to overcome the 
the numbing so that people can feel what, what they have to feel. I think as we heard in that story about the physician who uh, was learning to sing and to find his voice. The second quote of, again from Santa Clara uh, County First Five is, a system cannot be truly trauma informed unless the system can create and sustain a process of understanding itself. And I think again, uh, in this conversation with Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, we heard about this methodology of portraiture uh, to create conversations in which we can listen to each other and to ourselves for a deeper understanding of uh, things we um, may have passed over when we told the same story many, many times in the past. And the, and the last quote that I'd like to read from uh, uh, this work with First Five Santa Clara County is, trauma-informed systems, principles and practices support reflection in place of reaction, curiosity in lieu of numbing, self-care instead of self-sacrifice, and collective impact rather than siloed structures. And I think you heard today in this conversation with Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, um, both the reflection when we create the spaciousness to get past reaction, and of course your focus on, uh, in addition to attention, to curiosity, curiosity in lieu of numbing. And there is um, another comment I wanted to read. Um, not only are parents the experts on their children, but they know what's best for their child. And that belief must not be trifled with. There are um, a number of new um, questions. I think that, um, I'm not sure that they've gone to all of you. Um, folks have asked to see the slides again with the names of the, the books. Um, we will also post this podcast and webcast on our website, breastfeedingtouchpoints.org, so that you can see the slides again uh, there. And I'd like to uh, thank you once again for joining us today, to thank Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot again for this conversation and for um, her life's work, and um, to ask you um, to come back again on November 19th uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern time uh, to uh, join Kyle Pruitt, who has uh, devoted much of his career to listening to fathers. Thank you very much.